0: Thanks, Dom. Good morning. Morning. It's like I never left. (laughs) I've just been on a holiday. Um, Although this is low. Anyway, I'll deal. Um, All right. Hello. Well, you know, when I was in primary school, um, when I was in about grade four, I had homework, which at the time was not as terrible as the homework we give primary school kids now, I think. It was like to write like a paragraph about what I wanted to be when I grew up. Did anybody do something like that in primary school or have that kind of question? Yeah. So, you know, I've been asked that sort of question, and I've been asked, I've asked myself that sort of question a lot over the course of my life. Um, You know, what do I want to be when I grow up? What do I want to study at uni? What sort of job do I want to get? The favourite job interview question, where do you see yourself in five years? I never know how to answer that question. It's a pretty important question to ask yourself um, and, even more important, to try and answer it. Um, You know, at different times, I've kind of said, you know, I want to be a teacher, or I want to be a lawyer, or I've even said I want to be an accountant. Um, I want to go into ministry. I want to have kids. I want to live out of home. I want to be married. There are all these different things that I've wanted to be or have or do when I grow up. But... A little while ago, I kind of felt like I had to stop asking myself what I wanted to be when I grew up because, like, that ship has sailed. Like, I'm all grown up now. <laughs> um, I'm, like, a fully grown adult. I'm, you know, theoretically, financially independent. I live out of home. You know, I've got responsibilities. And it just feels like it, uh, there's not any more growing up to do. And yet, I still feel like... I need to grow up more (laughs) there's there's some there's like a shortage in me it's not it's not really like I've I don't feel like I've arrived you know I didn't think you know when I was a teenager or in my 20s that by the time I hit 40 which is what I've hit now I would feel the way that I do about my understanding of the world and my ability to deal with whatever issues sort of come my way. And sometimes I still feel like I'm playing at being an adult. And, you know, one day, I hope, I'll really deserve, like I feel to be call- like I feel like I should be called an adult. And I wonder whether you feel like that sometimes. I know some of you here aren't adults yet, you know, theoretically, but, you know, the thing is, you might have ticked off all the things that culturally we say goes into being an adult, Um, Like, you know, you've, you've, and yet you still feel like you've not really arrived and you're not sure of yourself, you're not sure of your situation as you thought you would be. And you still face situations that you feel are beyond your depth. You still make mistakes, you still disappoint people that you care about. You just think, wasn't I supposed to be further along by now? And our, our passage today, and actually the book of James, um, this is where the word of God comes in. Because I think there's something really important that we miss when we measure our lives and our growth by, by years or milestones or achievements or statuses. Because the thing is that when we measure our lives that way, we end up aiming our lives in that way. You know, if we say that we want to be married when we grow up, if we say we want to attain to a certain kind of qualification, attain to a certain status at work, attain to a particular bank balance where we'll feel really like we've arrived, That is the way our lives will point because that's what we're measuring, that's what we're looking to, to say, this is how I know that I've made it, that I've arrived. It might be pointed towards our children, our family, how secure we feel. It might be pointed towards our career, towards building a portfolio, towards seeking and growing particular relationships becoming an expert in a particular area. And bit by bit, as we point our lives more towards those things, they become our hope. That goal becomes our hope. That that is what will make our lives finally perfect. And that one day, we will finally reach the peak and stand exhausted, but joyful and content that we have finally made it. But God, through James, points us down a different path to a different goal where completeness and perfect maturity is found. And James will spend this letter Showing the reader two different paths. The path that leads to the perfect life. And the path that leads to destruction. Two ways, only two, and never anything in between. And this is the message of his letter that there is a way that we can walk. And when I say walk, that's the doing and the choosing and the being of life. There's a way that we can walk that is with God and towards God. And if we walk in this way, we will deal with wealth in a particular way. We will deal with justice in a particular way. We will speak in a particular way. We will pray in a particular way. We will think about our future in a particular way. And if we walk that way, James tells us, we will walk in wisdom and towards perfection. Because the perfect maturity that James is talking about hasn't got anything to do with what kind of job you have or what your family looks like or your investment portfolio or how cultured you are. James points to a complete maturity that is a particular kind of person whose actions are perfectly aligned to the wisdom of God. James is calling for God's people, because he's writing to God's people, to live out lives that are completely aligned with what we say we believe about God. Now what James isn't saying is that we have to prove that we're following God through our actions, or that we have to earn our salvation by living in a certain way. But what he is saying is totally in line with the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, with what Jesus says, with what Paul says that if we are truly transformed and changed by the Holy Spirit, if we are truly following God, that will change the way that we live. Because faith without works is dead. And the world will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. And a good tree will bear good fruit, and a bad tree, bad fruit. It is after we are saved by God that our lives will show that we have been saved. There is no way to follow Jesus, to have been saved by him, to have experienced his grace, to have the spirit of the living God living in us, and to not see practical, tangible ways that our lives are different. There is no way way and in our passage today James gives us three ways that we are gonna have to change to reorient our thinking if our actions and our lives are going to lead to that perfect maturity when we believe something it has to change the way that we think and if the way that we think changes our actions will follow So there are three things. We need to reorient our thinking about hard times. We need to reorient our thinking about wisdom. And we need to reorient our thinking about the meaning of life. So let's start. So we need to reorient our thinking about hard times and we find that in verses two to four. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, we've been raised, particularly, you know, in our modern Western times, to believe that it's our right to have a comfortable life, that we have a right to live without pain or loss. But that's not how life works. The generations and cultures that have gone before us didn't live with that sort of expectation. Pain and hardship were expected. The result of living with that expectation is that we tend to do one of two things. Either we completely try to avoid, minimise, ignore pain and suffering in our lives, or we maximise and we spotlight it and we make it part of our identity and who we are and try to, you know, kind of capitalise on that pain. We don't know how to handle it. Because in our minds, we say hardship is bad, pain is bad, struggle is bad. Now, I'm not saying that pain and suffering is good, that we should say, you know, woohoo, give me more pain and suffering. But look at how James views it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, Because these trials of many kinds will test and strengthen our faith and lead to maturity, completion, perfection. Now, he is careful in what he says, because simply going through trials and hardships, those things in themselves are not going to produce perfection. All right. You can say, I've had a really tough life. I've had a lot of things go on. But that in itself does not mean that you will be more mature, that you will be more spiritually complete. James was writing to a whole lot of Christian communities that had been scattered around. And the reason they had been scattered was because of persecution. They had to run. And they continued to face persecution where they were. The types of trials that they faced directly related to their standing faithfully as God's children, God's people. And we talked about that a lot in our Revelation series. They faced social and economic persecution, and sometimes their lives were also at risk for continuing to worship Jesus. Now, the trials that we face now, they are less likely to have such a direct link to our faith and yet, I don't think that James is limiting us only to persecution for our faith as a way to grow in maturity. He says trials of many kinds. There is a way in every sort of hardship, regardless of the size or the impact or the reason, that can lead to greater maturity. It is how the trial interacts with our faith in God that leads to perfection, right? It's how the trial interacts with our faith that will lead us closer to perfection. Even when we can say pretty clearly that it was our own fault... (laughs) I mean, just consider this briefly, right? You've done something to hurt your friend. It's you. It's on you. You did the wrong thing. And your friend is hurt, legitimately hurt. And consequently, your friend is angry and they've withdrawn from your friendship. This is your trial. Here's the question. How will you bear up under it? Will you apologize fully and freely and accept that you have absolutely done the wrong thing? Will you go back to them in humility when they, when they maybe reject your advances? Will you not minimize your partner and make excuses for your behavior? And will you not blame your friend and continue to speak well of and to them. Even though it hurts, will you continue to have a soft heart towards them? Will you not allow your love to turn into hate or indifference? Will you trust? that when you, even though your friend won't forgive you, that when you ask God for forgiveness, he does and will forgive you. And he does release you from that guilt. And will you persevere in prayer for them, putting your faith and hope in God that he continues to work in his time and his way. That is one way, potentially, to handle a trial where you are completely at fault, but where you can learn and grow because you respond in faith. You see, we need to learn how to walk through hard times, to experience pain and difficulty without minimizing or maximizing, and always continuing to have faith in God. We may not know the reason for our suffering, but whatever the cause, whatever the impact, we hold more tightly to God You see, hard times test our faith in this way. We question what we believe. We question whether God is real. We question whether God is good. We question whether God is really in control. But we have the opportunity to grow in maturity when that questioning leads us to say, God, I am going to behave as though I still believe that you are in control, that you do love me, that your plan is good and perfect, and I am willing to be humble and patient and wait on you for your timing and good plan to come to fruition. And as we do that, our faith in God is strengthened because it gives us the opportunity to see that God does come through. We get to see how God stays with us, how God shows us how he loves us. But we don't get to see that if we walk away. We need to reorient our thinking about hard times. Second, we need to reorient our thinking about wisdom. So if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is a double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, we get a lot of information available to us nowadays. Between Google and ChatGPT and whatever group you might want to get your advice from, there isn't much that has to go unanswered. And having all of this information available can make us think that we know how life works. And that we are equipped to make good decisions about the way that we should live. But as amazing as technology is, we need more than just information to make good decisions, to make wise decisions. And there are a lot of voices around trying to tell us what the good life is and how to get there. It's so easy for us to overestimate our wisdom and to follow along with the ideas and ways of thinking and seeing the world that are totally false and harmful. So, James says that instead of relying on our own wisdom or on the wisdom of others, we should ask God. And if we ask God, He will give generously. God isn't going to laugh at us and be like, you should know that by now, what's wrong with you? He's not going to look down on us because we don't have wisdom, and he isn't going to hold it back just to spite us. He will give us what we ask for. But there is a condition. God won't give us wisdom if we have doubt. Now, this is a particular kind of doubt that James is talking about. This isn't a catch-all for any kind of question that you have about God. We get the sense of it from the way that he illustrates the doubt. The person who has doubt, he says, is double-minded, unstable. They are moved about by every wave, by every gust of wind. The person who doubts is one who has not planted themselves in God, They don't really trust that God is good or that his ways are best. They will look around to other sources of wisdom. And consequently, all the different puffs and eddies, all the different ways in which people think that will change all the time will mean that their mind will be changed all the time. They will change their course. They will change their values. We don't know. They don't know. They'll just move around. I'm watching a show at the moment based around the, like you know, the Me Too movement. It's fictional, but there is some truth in what it captures. And there's this guy um, who, you know, is a kind of important, famous person. He was until he got called up for um, what's it called, sexual misconduct. And then all of a sudden, everyone cancels him. Right? He used to be this famous person that everyone liked and everyone, he thought, they thought he was a good guy. But now everyone's dropped him. And he's lost his standing, his job, his career. And at one point, uh, I think he's having a conversation with his, his lawyer, I guess, and he's told that he's not going to be paid out his contract because he's broken the morality clause. And you know, I, I've got to admit, I felt kind of sorry for him at this point because this mo- he's like, the morality clause is this catch-all thing that they put into a contract. And you can't not sign a contract that, you can't say you don't want to sign a contract with a morality clause in it because then you look like a really bad guy, so you have to. But the thing is, it's a moving target. You have no idea what they are gonna put as part of this morality because what I was doing before seemed okay to everybody. Everybody kind of knew what was going on and everyone was patting me on the back over it. But now, now I've broken the morality clause. Now they're not gonna pay me out my contract. Now I've lost my job. Now everybody's dropped me. And he's absolutely right. There's no way to pin it down. In a world where there is no God to declare the right way to live, What it means to be good, or right, or acceptable, is a moving target. It can change overnight. And sometimes it feels like it does. And the doubter, the double-minded person, is stuck with this moving target, not just in terms of their morality, but in terms of all of life. And the thing with that person is that even if God did give them his wise insight, they would still be tossed about by every wave and gust of wind. Because they don't really trust that what God has said is good and right. Now I know that there are things that God says that are hugely unpopular at the moment. And it can feel impossible to go against the tide of worldly wisdom that says that we should ignore what God says and that we know better than God. Because clearly what God has said is not good and is not right. But the thing is that without God, who is to say what is right or wrong in any given moment? Who's to say that in five years' time, or in 20 years' time, or in our grandchildren's time, it won't all have changed and we won't look like idiots to them anyway? (laughs) To seek after God's wisdom, we have to trust God, that he is wise, that he is good. And we can't be split on that. We can't judge God's wisdom according to our own thinking or to popular opinion. It doesn't work that way. It can't, not when you really think about it. We can't pick and choose which bits of what God says we want to follow and not follow and still be faithful children of God. We have to realize that there is no way for God to be God and for us to somehow be wiser than him. We need to reorient our thinking about wisdom. And third, we need to reorient our thinking about the meaning of life. So believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Here's the thing about money. It is the thing in this world that most closely approximates God. God. Obviously it's not God, because it seems to promise provision and stability and security. It seems to promise that it will meet our needs and our wants to bring happiness and status and comfort. It seems to say that if we have enough of this thing, we will not need to worry about anything ever again and our desires will be completely met. And if you want to be less selfish about it, you can say, not just my desires, my family's desires, my friends' desires, my... however many people's desires you want to include in that. It's why we look forward to winning Tats Lotto, or to a retirement where we have all the money we need, whatever that number turns out to be, because if we have that, we won't have anything to worry about anymore. We feel like we can control the money flow. We can work to earn it, save it, even steal it. We can be smart about the way we use it, we can make good investments, it'll pay off. But it's just not true. (laughs) We can't control money any more than we can control our health or even our ability to go five kilometers from our home. We can't control money because we can lose our jobs in an instant. Financial markets can crash. Natural disasters can strike. We can become incapacitated in some way. Inflation can go up, and it does. The economy can crash, can go into recession. We think that we can control it, though. We think that we can. And that the more we have, that somehow the smarter we have been to be able to accumulate it, And so we take pride in it as though it makes us better than others who have less. It puffs us up and we award status to each other on the basis of riches. But money is not God and it is not a secure way to measure life or maturity or perfection. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. James is not condemning anyone who is rich. That he doesn't include a measure for that. Right? Like it, how do you classify who is rich and who is poor? Dunno. But look at how he has labelled what the rich are doing. They are going about their business. They are not doing God's business. They are going about their own business, the business of accumulating for themselves or their community. And that is the shape of their lives and their decisions. That is the trajectory, the aim of their life. That is where their life is pointed. They are proud. And their lives are pointed away from God. That is the direction that they are walking in. And guys, there's a reason that Jesus talks so much about money. Even though we feel uncomfortable talking about it in church. Money, like almost no other thing has the ability to capture our hearts in an insidious way in a way that we don't even realize what is going on we can feel like we're just doing the right thing that we're just being smart with it that we're just managing it well that we're just trying to provide good things for the people that we love that we're just we just we just But there comes a point, and probably if we're honest, many of us have already crossed that point, where we're no longer relying on God. We're relying on the cash to get us through. And in the place and time that we live right now, that is probably one of the biggest, biggest temptations and pitfalls that we have to face about ourselves. It seems good and right to save for retirement, to save for, you know, for your, your, your super fund, to build up a nest egg for your children, to do all of these things. But where is your heart? Are you about God's business in your life? Or has it become so consumed with the getting of money, with the storing up of money, that you don't have time or energy to think about God's business? Have you... Do you feel trapped in a job where you know it's not the best? You know you're working crazy hours, terrible demands. You know it is sucking up your life. And yet, you feel like you can't move from it. Examine that can't. Why can't you? Will God stop holding you in His hand? Will God leave you or forsake you? Will He somehow lift whatever protection and provision? No, if we believe that God is who he says he is, that he loves us, that he is good, that he is all powerful and in control, nothing else, not money, not hardship, Not what anyone else thinks or says can come between us and his great love for us. Nothing else. Where is your life pointing? And what shape do your decisions make? I asked you what you want to be when you are fully grown up. Not when you're 18 or 21 or have a house or get married, but when you are fully grown up in eternity, because that is where our lives are heading. And the rich, the people who are about their own business, they aren't just fading away. This is a picture of their eternity without God and the perfect imperfection that will be theirs when they are fully grown. Is your life filled with the business of God or your own? Are your decisions shaped by the love of God, or the love of self. Let me pray for us. Father, I just wanna lift us up before you today. Father, you are good and gracious and kind. You will not withhold any good thing from us. You have promised. You will never leave us or forsake us. There is no worry that we need to carry no burden that we cannot share with you. Father, I want to pray for each one of us today. Would you open our hearts to you, to hear from you, to, to receive your love and your wisdom, the truth about who you are? Let us hear you, God. And would you give us the courage? to respond in faith, confident that you are who you say you are and we can trust you. In your name, amen.